Welcome to the podcast, Three Things That Matter. My name is Anne Blake, and in each episode, I interview a different guest. They are asked to bring three things that matter to them. These might vary from books and plants to places and occasions. These three things provide the jumping off point for discussion of the extraordinary in the everyday. Three Things That Matter is a Limerick Post podcast and is released every second Wednesday. In episode 9 of the second series, I speak to activist Saoirse Exton. Saoirse began her work as a climate activist at the age of 13 in Limerick, when she founded the local branch of Fridays for Future movement in her city. She is a member of the C40 Global Youth and Mayors Forum, which creates an intergenerational conversation on the climate crisis among 14 youth activists from across the world and mayors of world's mega cities. She is currently serving her second term as a quality officer of the Irish Second Level Students' Union, which enables her to bring student voices to the forefront of decision-making in Ireland. It, we, we have an interesting tale with this podcast. We've had, we had a, uh, I like to call it a tech-tastrophe, um, where we actually recorded a very beautiful conversation and then tech let us down. And so we're re-recording this, but uh, <laughs> I have I have high hopes that it will once again be a lovely conversation. So I have a bit of a jump on the listeners where I have encountered these three things already, but I'm quite excited to see what will happen a little bit differently this time. Um, so Saoirse, what, what is your first thing? <laughs> well, uh, my first thing is the Odyssey. Um, because, you know, as I said before, (laughs) uh, I, you know, I, I'm very passionate and I, I have a bit of a special interest with mythology. Uh, and I think also, uh, in terms of our kind of ancient stories and everything, I think it's really important to, um, reconnect with them, um, and to make sure that, that we are aware of them. Because I think not just the stories in Ireland, but, you know, stories from cultures all over the world, um, that have, especially have a reverence for nature are really important to, because we, I think we have lost this kind of knowledge that earth is sacred. Um, and we've lost the knowledge that, you know, things like water and air are sacred. Um, and this is part of the reason, in my opinion, why we, have now gone on and exploited the planet and its various different people so horribly because we've disconnected ourselves from these very um, primordial uh, myths in some ways. And I, anyway, yeah, and I think the Odyssey is it's a, it's a very emotional piece. Um, and so I, it, it kind of talks about the human condition and I just thought it was an important thing to me. So, I mean... For the uninitiated who might not have done classical studies or anything like that, the Odyssey is is an ancient text by Homer. Mm-hmm. Um, but what what's what's the kind of I suppose if you were to give the uh, <laughs> the the simplified overview of <laughs> of what happens, uh, what what does it what what kind of a story does it tell? So um, basically, it's about this guy called Odysseus, and he is coming home from. Uh, ten long years uh, at in the Troy, um, which you know that's Helen of Troy and that whole story, and so he he's a he was a general there and he's coming home, 
to go back to his native Ithaca, where his wife and son is there. Um, and, you know, like 10 years is a very long time for anyone, but but especially, you know, in the ancient Greek world, you've missed so much of your own life as well. I mean, he was a middle-aged man pretty much coming home from the war. But for various different reasons, um, his crew is blown off course. Um, and so they have to have... Well, actually, this is where the term Odyssey comes from. He goes through an Odyssey. Um, and eventually, he unfortunately loses all the members of his crew. And it takes him another 10 years to get back to Ithaca. So after 20 long years, he returns um, to his wife, who who has stayed loyal, which is an important part of the book, and his son. And they take back Ithaca from the suitors that want to marry his wife. And he lives happily ever after. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think the story isn't necessarily the important part of it. Uh, I think the important part is the very human relationships that, that the different characters have with one another. And also in terms of like relevance within the ancient Greek world, it was essentially probably the closest thing they had to a Bible. So, you know, um, there is a chapter, the Book of the Dead, and it's a really interesting um look into what they would have believed the afterlife looked like, you know, um, this really, actually a really horrible place, very, very, not, not like heaven or anything like that, very cold and, and wet and miserable. And it's just a very, very interesting look, um, outlook on life that, you know, you, all you have is now, um, and in the future with death, although there is an afterlife, it isn't a happy place for you to reminisce about your life for all eternity. Um, so that's why life is all the more important. Um, so yeah. It's, it's lovely. Um, this idea of really connecting with an ancient story mm. because, um, obviously Ireland is a, a land of ancient mythology as well. And, um, I think it's an interesting point that you make that we're, we're more and more disconnected from the earth and, and it's very easy uh, you even see online it's very easy to be mean to someone you don't know but if you see someone attacking someone you know online you're more likely to go hey don't do that but if there's a bit of a remove it's easier to as you say to be disconnected and I think it's 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 such a point that it's very easy not to think about the earth when when you you know if you do something you don't feel the consequence of it immediately as you would have if you're if you were working with the earth or if you were um growing your own vegetables or whatever it is you know if if if, if things went wrong and you were relying on mm. growing vegetables for food so point being <laughs> echoing what you're saying the, it's I, I think it's amazing that a story like this and you you did you made a point that the odyssey the term comes from that and in the in our previous um abandoned <laughs> chat that is off in the ether somewhere um you mentioned another word that is in our day-to-day -day vocabulary that came from the odyssey as well yeah that one is mentor and it's the name of a character who provides mentorship i suppose to um odysseus's son uh, and yeah I, I was just kind of remarking on on the just how amazing you know the fact that that even the English language takes words from this epic 
Um, and, you know, I haven't studied it in the ancient Greek, so I know there are a lot of connections between word, um, languages like ancient Greek and, and English. But, you know, even just in the names, it's just really interesting to see how characters have resonated with, you know, people across the world and across civilizations for a very, very long time. And actually, what you were talking about before is really interesting because I was just thinking about how often we think of like a disconnect from folklore or belief systems in an area as like colonialism um, and how for instance in Australia a, a while ago there there are these thousands thousand year olds well hundreds of years old at least uh, birthing trees that um, certain Aboriginal tribes would have used and they were very very important within these tribes and there was a development company that wanted to cut them down and make a road and I just think you know that's an example of something that has not just folklore, but history associated with it. Um, and I think, you know, we often associate the other coming in and ignoring this belief system. But I think with this sort of globalism that we've all gotten used to now, uh, although it's not necessarily all bad, um, there is a lot of issues with... We have now almost become the colonizer in our own land. And we have a very much... Um, we have very much a colonialist attitude towards our stories and our own language um, and just the other cultures in general, but it's our own too. Um, just the exclusion. I'm someone, my mother is from um, Australia and my dad, he's, although he grew up around here, um, he's not from Limerick. Uh, so um, although I am very much Irish, uh, as a child, I find it very difficult to fit in with the kind of very common culture uh, of, you know, uh, even even in things like music. I, I play music, but even in um, the various cultists that we would join, uh, there was always a sort of subtle exclusion. Um, and I think that is actively destructive towards the... The, our own culture it's like Irish language the way that it's taught in this country it's really not uh, I mean, of course there are going to be good teachers but the curriculum as a whole discourages the use and the love of Irish like actually really interesting with this panel that's coming up um, and Manco not um, on it uh, you know I'm reading his book at the moment preparing for the panel and it's really amazing as somebody who considers myself an almost Gaeilgor not quite a Gaeilgor to read like these really beautiful and contextual words that they stripped um, their, of their meaning in the Irish education system, you know, and often I would I might ask a teacher, you know, what's the, why is this word used? Or, you know, what's the linguistic kind of purpose of this certain thing? Or, you know, asking about grammar and they'll go, oh, I don't know. Um, and it's sort of like, it's very confusing because I, I genuinely think Irish just isn't treated like a language here. And I think, like I mentioned, we've almost become the colonizer in our own land. So, yeah. <laughs> wow, wow, that's, that is, that's some to a sobering thought. Uh, I'm, I'm always surprised um, because Irish wasn't taught particularly, like I, I had good teachers and that, but it was just the atmosphere around it wasn't... Um, a living language you know mm -hmm. I knew how to talk about unemployment or 
on or on team pollucked, you know, or whatever the environment, you know, and but I couldn't chat. Mm. You know, like I, I could chat more in French almost than I could in, in Irish. You know what I mean? I, I felt like I was being taught to speak French, whereas Irish was it was um it wasn't something to be celebrated and, and, and I do love it, but I I mean I feel like my love for it was in spite of how it was presented to me. And yeah. that's, it's more about as you say, the curriculum. And and then you're like, Oh, but things must be different now. But like I hear you saying the stuff and I've nieces and nephews and I'm I can't believe it's not changed. <laughs> that this Yeah, like that that it's not this really because I know there's a lot of passionate people who've come through with an interest in the curriculum, but it just there is no reason why a young person in Ireland now should not be absolutely connected to Irish. You know, it's mm-hmm. such a, a a beautiful language. And as you mm-hmm. say, Mancon and Megan, and I'll definitely before this is out, like you are going to be talking, uh, you're going to be on a panel with him in as part of the Future Limerick the Climate Arts Festival, and we'll give that another shout out uh, before it's up. But he is a stunning uh, kind of writer and to listen to him talk about Irish is just, it makes you fall in love with it. Like I, I'd imagine if I wasn't Irish, I'd be like, oh my God, I want to know more about this language. But yeah, I think it, it's very, um, you said some some things in the, as I said, the, the previous chat where, uh, you know, this idea of connecting to ancestry. And I think I gave you this quote I heard from leadership my my wife d- had had taken and they were talking about being ancestors in training and i just i think that idea of connecting to what you're talking about that connecting to the past and the present with an eye on on the future it's it's just it's just the antithesis of our day-to-day life with where everything is about chaos and now and and panic and busyness Mm, yeah and I think it's it's really interesting because as somebody who is who studies economics at school um you really see how the system is based on pure profit and that that's it like there's no space for anything else you know one of the really interesting things um I was on a panel recently uh, for Worldwide Global Schools and they were having their global annual conference. Basically, it's like this organisation that encourages students across Ireland to be kind of global citizens and to take action and things like this. And so it's very cool. Um, but the per- somebody on the on the panel was talking about how, you know, we use GDP as a way to measure um, welfare uh, in various different countries. GDP is... Uh, oh my god it's really bad that I don't remember the exact <laughs> uh, gross domestic don't don't, don't, yeah. d- don't look at me <laughs> I'm afraid I never did economics yeah, I, in any shape or form the problem. I should know this I do economics I'm actually studying this right now but GDP anyway it's global dom- <laughs> or some, sorry gross domestic product um, and it's basically everything that's produced or the, the basically generally the money that is produced or the wealth produced in one country in this in the state of Ireland for instance I think our GDP is something like maybe three billion uh, US dollars or something like that um, and it's really interesting because that's purely monetary it's purely you know saying well this is how much money is produced in this country um, and yet it is used as an indicator of how 
well off a country is. Um, and that it just doesn't make any sense to me because it's like, you know, I'm reading my economics book and it says this thing. And you're like, how does the wealth of a country actually indicate how well off people are? Surely the wealth of a country um, and especially a country like Ireland, well, any country really, but in a country like Ireland where are, we don't, you know, we're not the most just and equitable country in the world. Um, I, I surely it actually does the opposite, and it shows that that we're much better at being exploit exploitative, and much better at at getting as much money as possible. Um, and I just I don't know I find that I find that really frustrating because it, it just goes to show that like even in the ways that we measure. Uh, that that we measure well-being and welfare and justice, it is purely based on profit, and a lot of that profit also is very private. So I'm not sure what it has, what like why it has anything to do with with well-being in a country when it when it's mo the majority of it is owned by private multinational companies. So it's very confusing to me, and I think part one of the issues with today's society is that. Um, for want of a better word, you know, I'm saying last time I'm not religious or anything, and I do think we need a different word word for it. But you know, spirituality, we we don't have any space for exploring the more human side of ourselves rather than the sort of machine side of ourselves. Um, and I think by learning, you know, Irish, learning your native language, learning your myths, um. Uh, going out into the landscape to just look at it. <laughs> it it's not it doesn't mm -hmm. just give you a sense of belonging. It doesn't just improve your mental health. It actively fights against a capitalist and oppressive system because you're saying, you know, I am not just a number f to produce money. Um, I am something that is human and that has emotions and that has history and that has, an amazing brain because we all have amazing brains so i just think it's really important that people kind of realize that that by reconnecting with things like the irish language you're you're actively being anti-colonial um and i just yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's that's a that's a wonderful way of kind of phrasing it and and, and summing it up um and i i um, I think it's a good kind of segue in a way into just into your second thing mm. uh, because uh, you are an activist and uh, you're a climate activist and an activist in in general in general as well. It's funny and just going into that, I remember this. I don't remember the exact quote, but um, my wife Jenny has talked about uh, a a person who studies education and he he had the uh he just posed the question imagine if every single part of how we prepare a human for the world in our education system is about creating kind empathic and generous person rather than as you said someone who will contribute to the profits mm -hmm. or go into the machine um the industrial machine so what would the world look like? What would our country look like if the purpose of education, if everything driving it, not just that that was part of it, but everything driving 
the education system was about producing humans who were empathic, kind and generous. Um, mm. That might happen by the by, but it's more like putting that at the core. Mm. So with that little <laughs> little comment and, and with that frame, let's, uh, let's move on to your second thing. Just a point on what you said there. Uh, sorry, I will move okay, on to yeah. the second one quickly. <laughs> um, in my my mother was actually talking to me about something really um, interesting lately. And she was saying how the education system isn't fit for purpose at all anymore because a lot of young people are coming out of it and they don't have basic skills like uh, teamwork or talking to people. <laughs> um, and it's really interesting to, to, to for that to be said because it isn't just about, you know, saving the planet. It isn't just about creating kind people. It's about creating competent adults and we're failing at that. But anyway, second thing. Um, yes, you're, you're, no, amen. Let's keep adding to the list of, of what's good. Excellent. <laughs> but yeah, the second thing um, I had was an event that happened almost three years ago now, which is really weird for me because three years is a long time in my life. Um, but... I, in August 2019, I um, had the privilege of being one of 14 young people from Ireland who attended, um, it was called SMILE, but that's an abbreviation, but it was basically a conference of Fridays for Future members in Lausanne in Switzerland. And it was, it was beautiful because, uh, you know, August, summer and everything. Um, and, you know, I was saying, I was saying yesterday this as well, but you know, it can often be quite isolating to be an activist because, um, for a variety of reasons, you know, partially because you have experiences that other people can, will never be, you know, be able to understand for better or for worse. <laughs> you make, you have sort of this sense of urgency about everything that is not reflected by the school environment and by a lot of peers not at, through any fault of their own often but through this lack of general education um and you know when so when you go to one of these conferences and you meet all of these people um and for me it was the first time meeting them all in person it's so incredible because it feels like you are actually meeting your family you know and we were talking yesterday about like how it it you you were saying Anne had like it's different to meet your tribe and and that's what it kind of felt like and that's why it was so important to me because I I was meeting people who understood something about me that other people in my normal life tend not to. Um, there is a very emotional side of climate activism, especially if if you were as young as a lot of us were when we started. Uh, I was 13, you know, I was barely a teenager. Um, and you do feel like your childhood has been stripped away. Um, and it can be very frustrating, um, especially in terms, you know, with climate activism, you, you never see anything barely adequate. And so it can be really frustrating when year after a year, you know, you put your, you put your mental health on the line, you, you put everything on hold because you care about something. Um, so, you know, when you have people there who are like, who get you, it can be really, really powerful. Um, and although the conference was also up until that point, the most stressful week of my life, because teenagers tend to make things dramatic and stressful, um, it was still really incredible because I, I, it felt like a community for the first time, really, because group chats don't really constitute a community. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they help like strengthen 
something that, that already, it has yeah. to be something that already exists. Yeah. Do you know, um, I think we've, we've all kind of learned that in the last couple, few years is online is, is amazing. I mean, look at us now. We're, we're doing stuff online <laughs> that um, otherwise I would have to travel out to your very lovely house and record this uh, with you, which would be great too. But I suppose there's a great freedom comes online. But it's, I, I kept saying this particularly around, I was talking about live performance to friends, but around personal inter connectivity as well I would say it's a good placeholder mm-hmm. but it's not a replacement mm-hmm. uh, particularly in the, in the pandemic world um, and that sense of community that can only come like you have your family you have friends or are you schoolmates whatever but there is a sense of community with a shared vision with a shared passion and it seems that this event was this real key moment for you, like of meeting, meeting people who you just have that, that bond that's beyond like liking the same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. It was, it was a catalyst for many things, positive and not so positive. I I think I'm, I'm fairly, I, I, I believe that I've been both burned out and, I have issues with anxiety and I think it all started there. So that's, that's not so great. But um, in terms of a lot of friendships and bonds, they started there. And, you know, I think often climate friends are the best friends because like I mentioned, um, when I was at, I was at COP26, um, the big climate conference in November. And I was initially supposed to be staying in this one apartment and it was brilliant because it was like 10 minute walk away from the conference, but I was alone and halfway through the week when my, all my colleagues arrived from Ireland, I was like, I have to move. Because when you get home after a long day at a conference, you're like, you need to de- detox. And it's just detoxing with climate activists when you're a climate activist, about climate activist stuff. It's like, you all know what you're talking about. It's like telepathy, if you know what I mean. You've all been through the same experiences. And it, it's not like talking to someone who... I feel like people try to understand, but it is it is difficult to to just quite grasp what it's like being a youth activist unless you're right in the midst of it. Um, and that can be, like I mentioned, really alienating sometimes, but it can also be really amazing when you actually do find those people because, you know, you can have all sorts of uh, complaining sessions and, you know... <laughs> <laughs> yeah and that allows you to to process as well um mm. but it's not all just staying in your head you're getting a chance to i mean we figure things out like the term thinking out loud is you know it's very apt sometimes that's how you 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 figure things out through talking out mm. loud yourself but also through hearing and and sharing with other people like we're not there's a danger of us all becoming quite like kind of like silos at the moment um, coming out of the pandemic um, because we haven't been bouncing off each other. And, you know, we also put manners on each other. (laughs) Like that's just, that's just an an element of being, being a human. Um, And like your activism, it's, it's remarkable. I I did admit it yesterday. I'll admit it again today. I can guarantee you uh, you're, you're nearly 17 am I right 17 in two months yes yeah okay well over two months no no less than two months 
maths. <laughs> well, I can, I, can, I can guarantee you when I was 16 or nearly 17 in two months, I was not uh, taking action in life or in activism. Um, I mean, I'm not. Uh, like, it, it was just something that was not in my life. So to have not only to be as actively involved, but to have a number of years under your belt and to have established your activism even before uh, the pandemic kicked in. So you, you started off Fridays with Future when you were 13, am I, am I right? Yeah, 13. You know, so like I, I certainly don't want to go, aren't you great? Oh, brilliant. <laughs> like I don't let it not be interpreted that way at all. Um, but I suppose maybe you get you do get asked this a lot, but what what was it that made you go, right, here, like something has to be done mm. and I'm just feeling very ready to do something about it. So in 2018, during the repeal referendum, I remember vividly looking at people and going like, when I'm older, I'm going to do stuff like this. You know, I'm going to, I was about, I think maybe 11 actually when, when the referendum happened or at very nearly 12 or I don't know. And uh, my mom took me to the Count in Dolan's pub and we we had great crack there. And I remember just this feeling of victory and happiness after after we won. And apparently I turned to my mother and I said, this was my feminist awakening. I don't actually remember that, but that's, that's what she said happened. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, and basically since from that moment I was kind of looking for something to get involved in I was like you know the next referendum the next campaign because obviously you know only in 2016 there had been um uh, equal marriage so I that was another thing I was really young in 2016 so I wasn't even aware of it particularly aware of it but you know I was like you oh. you're even younger you were yeah. even younger. It was actually twenty fifteen. Fifteen. Uh, it's well, it's burned. It's burned. It's burned on my brain. Yeah. So I I yeah. do know that. But, um, but yeah, sorry. Yeah, you were saying. But yeah, I um. So this was. Yeah. Anyway, so I was looking for 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 something to do, and then, uh, my mom showed me videos of, uh, climate strikers in Melbourne, her home city, and. I remember like watching them and realizing that these people were my age or slightly older and going like, wow, these, how is it that young people can, mo and like, it was a massive crowd. It was in late 2018. It was like a month after Greta had first started striking and they had like 40,000 people, maybe, maybe more than that um, already. And I was like, how do they manage this? It, you know, um, actually probably more than that because Melbourne is a very big city so probably a lot more 40,000 is just a big number to us us Ireland cultures. Um <laughs> but you know I from so from that moment I looked around and I tried to find play, you know climate strike groups so we contacted a bunch of people and yeah I eventually texted someone and I was like how do I get involved and they were like you know what, just just go ahead, just do it. And so I did. I decided one day that I was going to do it for nine hours. That was a bad idea. Uh, it, it rained so much. <laughs> oh God, it rained so much that my poster actually started to disintegrate at the bottom. So I had to make a new one. But it was, you know, from there, it just got really wild. And I think 
one of the really amazing things especially was the support that we received on the street like people coming up and giving me pies and hot chocolate and like also sometimes like a politician would just randomly pull up and you would know because they would just pull up on the, the side of the road and then they'd get out take a photo and disappear and it was so it was just <laughs> yeah it was it was great times it probably you know it, unfortunately it, it COVID kind of killed it um, and I'm not sure if it will come back here with my face anyway hopefully there'll be some younger people who will take it on but it was a very amazing experience um, and you know it led to things like I think my 14th birthday was I was protesting against Trump. So, you know, I, I've i been doing this very avidly since since I began. That's amazing. Wonderful. Uh, just fills me with joy, I have to say. <laughs> it's just it's very inspirational. Um, and I can say we might move on to your third thing. Just keeping an eye on the clock as I need to. Um and uh, yeah, what we did have this conversation yeah. already, but the listeners haven't heard it. So can you can you tell me about your third thing? <laughs> yeah. So my third thing is writing, which is kind of a bit um, broad. But I, from the age of like eight or something, I've loved writing, trying to write stories. I never finished them. There's a big stack of them. In fact, I have a bunch of pages that I've just found randomly around my room stuck to my wall. And at first I thought it would be a cool kind of like, you know, oh, it looks nice, aesthetic thing. But actually it's kind of a bit depressing because it's like, oh, God, all of these things, all these ideas. Um, but yeah, I, I really I just really love writing. And I think one of the things that I did particularly um, fairly recently. I mean, it's almost a year since I did it, so I don't know. Time flies by. Is I rewrote Irish myths um, for this application I did, and it was really an amazing process because I, I, I love mythology as aforementioned, and so I wanted to kind of get another perspective, especially for the female characters, because so often you know their stories were taken out altogether or changed um, to fit a very specific narrative and I just think I really wanted to to find ways for their voices to get through um, so yeah <laughs> and what myth what myths I've always have trouble saying words like myths or moths with my <laughs> with our Irish accent THS it's not a good one but what myths have you uh, tackled in your in your adaptation? So there's a couple of a couple of different ones. Um, one I think maybe one of the best ones was, um, or one of my favorite ones anyway was uh, so Connor Macnessa, um, is a very famous character in Irish mythology. He's well known. He's in Deirdre of the Sorrows, and he's in the town, you know, with Cucullin. He's Cucullin's uncle. Um, but people don't actually know where he gets his name. Macnessa means son of Nessa. And Nessa was his mother, and she, um, her, she had twelve foster fathers for some reason, and they were killed uh, violently. And she went to seek revenge, but her father, for some reason, said no. So she was like, "Well, I'm going to do it myself." And so she did. She went around killing everyone she thought to be associated with whoever had killed her foster fathers, which you know nowadays would probably be bad, but back then I think it was pretty pretty cool. Um, <laughs> uh, and then 
so yeah, she she did all this stuff, and then um, eventually she was forced to marry the man who had killed her foster fathers, and she had a child with him, which is Connor. Uh, and then eventually she went on and she married again the king of the king of Ulster, not not her father, a new king. Um, and she said to him, "Sure, look." My son, I want him to call his children the son of a king. So are you able to just give him the throne for a year? And so her husband was like, yeah, sure, I'll go off. Um, And she was such a good leader. She was such a good political advocate from behind the throne. She bribed everyone and she made Ulster a very prosperous kingdom. But at the end of the year, when the king came back, the noblemen of Ulster said to him, actually, no, you, you can't be our king. And see, the thing is... um. Back in that time, there was the system of tanistry, so it was like the noblemen decided who the king was. So they, it wasn't even like he was coming back to be like, well, I, this is my rightful throne. They were like, no, it's not your rightful throne anymore. <laughs> so um, it, I don't know. I really love that. But I, as I said yesterday, you know, it's just really interesting how we hear about Connor Macnessa all the time. Um, but we never hear about his mother, even in a lot of adaptions of the time. Um, she's barely mentioned, you know, she's a footnote. Um, and I just think it's really interesting because there are sources out there which, you know, discuss her. And so it's not like we have a need of information about her. Like, so I'm confused. Um, and I just think, you know, when Christianity arrived in Ireland, it had a very specific narrative it wanted to put forward. And unfortunately, the Irish myths, or maybe fortunately, didn't fit into that narrative. Um, and so, because although women were not necessarily equal, um, they were able, they had a lot more rights than they would have later in a more medieval kind of Gaelic society um, under Brehan law. So, you know, it's just really interesting to see how these characters would have been butchered probably to fit this very specific narrative another thing that they probably would have changed is there's a lot of theories about Cucullin actually having a gay lover um Ferdia and that was also removed they presume but again it's difficult to know because Ireland had an oral tradition so we didn't write anything down um so it's it's frustrating when you're reading this myths because you're like what's real and what is entirely made up like for instance there's some myths about the foundation of Ireland happening after Noah's flood and it makes no sense whatsoever because, you know, our people have been here for, we think around, they've at least been farming for at least 6,000 years on this island. Um, and that just doesn't really make sense. Um, but, you know... <laughs> <laughs> and with your adaptation of of um, Nessa, uh, what what way did you frame it? I suppose to in a different way, or what, what why? How did you tackle the myth? Well, I really want to. I've read a lot of. Um, I wrote these before. I read a lot of these retellings, but uh, a lot of the ancient Greek retellings that are quite popular right now, like Circe by Madeline Miller, is a big one. I definitely would recommend. It's a very very good book. But a good thing about those characters is they're really bitter. And I think that's a good thing because they have a right to be angry because the society that they live in has wronged them. And I just think that I really wanted to have my character not just kind of rolling over and accepting the things that come her way and the people 
all men who tell her, you know, not to do things. Um, and even though, you know, she does marry, um, it doesn't matter. Like, she keeps going. That's not the end of the story. And so I really wanted to have a kind of angry side to her. Because I also think, you know, if you go around... Um, killing people out of revenge I feel like you're probably going to be quite an angry person so I didn't want to have her as a kind of like you know oh I'm I don't know <laughs> kind of flighty a, a, a faint a, a fainting damsel yeah yeah who's uh <laughs> who's, who's, who drops who faints at the sight of blood <laughs> yeah that's um it it is true though you know the stories that could get told keep getting told and mm. and they inform our view of the world and if if there are no female characters of importance if they're always just there to to progress the plot for a male character or to be there to die so that he has a reason to do something or to be his or to just be his mother mm. so that he has help in getting on his way, but not not having any autonomy of their own, not having any ideas of their own, that does melt into society and it melts into the stories that get told today and the mm. films that get told today. Um, so I think it's always good to to reimagine and revisit, yeah, and not just take what's handed, what is just handed to you. Um, yeah, so, I, spe- I think especially yeah, with the ancient I'd Greek say, myths because they're so sexist. Yeah, they've got a whole yes. host of, of issues. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say, check out some. There's a couple of Greek plays that are quite bizarrely uh, subversive. Um, there's one called Lysistrata, and suddenly I cannot remember the name of <laughs> the writer. Oh my god! I I have directed the show. I've been in the show. Basically, the idea is the women go on strike to stop the war. Yeah. No, so, I know. I know um, the one. I know the one very well. <laughs> <laughs> you know that and then there's women at war as well as another one but they, I mean they're few and far between they stand out because they're, they're not the typical tale that's told um, I'm horrified I can't mm. remember the playwright's name but um, I, as again uh, as I said I do have to keep an eye on the clock as we do this and you have been very gracious to talk to me again um, <laughs> having had a conversation like this very similar yesterday uh, so thank you um, but before before we do wrap up um Oh, we did talk earlier, but that you're going to be on a panel. Like, so this this podcast, it's out in the world. It's going to be out in the world forever. It's going to be out in the world long, you know, depending on technology, maybe when you eventually reach the age I'm at now, it might <laughs> still be there. So, um, but in the meantime, uh, it is currently April 2022 and there is a festival, an arts festival called Future Limerick Climate Arts Festival. First of its kind uh, in Limerick um, in May. 16 to 22 22nd i think and you are featuring on a panel yes on the 18th of may at eight o'clock in the bell table can you tell us about that in a bit more detail yeah so i'm not exactly sure what we will be discussing i think it will just be general sustainability climate stuff which is exciting um and it will be myself um my con megan uh and kira carney from books of leaf book Books of Le- Book of Leaves podcast, <laughs> um, and mm. which is another really really good podcast I would recommend. Um, and yeah, I suppose we're just going to be talking about activism uh, and all sorts of exciting things. So if you are free or around, 
uh, please do come along. Um, I'm sure there will be some very, very interesting discussions about a wide variety of things. Um, and it's also a very nice venue. The Bell Table is a lovely venue. So, yeah. Absol- absolutely. And it's um, to find out more about it, the, uh, you can check out the, the festival itself on um, futurelimerick.ie. So they have all the information there. And also for yourself, Saoirse. So I imagine, you know, the world is opening up again. You're soon going to be at a voting age, which is, I think the world will be better for. Because um, I'd say activism is frustrating when uh, when you don't have a vote in your hand. Um, but in the meantime, where can people follow you? Um, how can people find you? So um, I do have Twitter, but I don't use it terribly often. Um, and I I mostly use my Instagram, which is at Searsha underscore Exton. It's the same on Twitter as well. But like I mentioned, I don't use it particularly often. Um, and yeah, that's it. So I post, I would post a lot of events that I'd be doing and um, other kind of uh, information on, on other people's events or different campaigns or climate and human rights stuff so um it'd be great if you could give me a follow <laughs> absolutely and obviously if you're listening to this podcast you can see Saoirse's name written on whatever device you are listening on but just in case it is s-a-o-i-r-s-e underscore underscore e-x-t-o-n and there was a lovely point you made yesterday actually which I just thought would be nice to to bring in and it was about where your heart is around climate activism um, which I thought would be a nice point maybe to end on. And it was around the, the importance, not just of climate activism, but looking for climate justice. And I thought that was just something that isn't really been spoken about in a lot of kind of circles around climate activism. Mm. So I'll give, you, I'll give you the last word on that one. <laughs> yeah, I think I was kind of saying that oftentimes people think that all climate action is is just the environmental side of things and it's a lot more complex than that climate the climate crisis what you know climate change global warming whatever you call it it's interconnected with every other humanitarian and justice crisis out there um so you know at the moment the war in ukraine is directly connected to um to the climate crisis through a variety of reasons it's all all interconnected with one another and so one of the key things is that when we take climate action, um, and I'm when I mean like legislative action and things like creating a tax, let's say for example, it's really important to ensure that people are able to continue, um, well, to to have a just transition. Basically, that's what it's called. So, for instance, if you work in an industry like farming, which is very reliant on systems that are now you know, recognise it's not especially the best and most environmentally friendly way of doing things, you know, it's very important that that your way of living is sustained, um, at least in some way, you know, uh, that you don't suffer because of, of action. Now, unfortunately, we are at the point in time where we will have to suffer a little bit as a society, especially economically, but um, it should not mean that people will be having to absolutely uproot and change their lives because that is not what climate justice is and that is not what climate action is and I think a lot of people are quite scared of climate action because it sounds 
terrifying and like the whole world is is going to become some sort of I don't know authoritarian um, type thing but in reality climate action is just advocating for the right the rights um, and and the well-being and equality and equity for every single person on the planet it's an intersectional movement so yeah I will leave it at that because that is just so amazingly put uh, thank you so much Saoirse it's been a joy chatting to you again and uh, thank you for sharing your thoughts and your things that matter thank you for having me you've been listening to three things that matter with me Anne Blake a Limerick Post podcast produced by Eric Fitzgerald theme tune is composed by myself and performed and recorded by my lovely brother David Blake You can follow Limerick Post on Twitter at Limerick Post. If you enjoyed the podcast, please let others know and rate it on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at AnneBlake78, on Instagram at AnneBlakePlay, and the podcast on the hashtag 3ThingsTM.